0: Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at Godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. welcome to the god solution where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about god and god's answers for humanity's questions i'm nate herbst and i'm so glad that you're tuned back in well today we're going to be finishing up our two-part interview with dr lydia mcgrew about her book hidden in plain view if you tuned in last week you would have heard that she is a widely published analytic philosopher and that she is doing a tremendous amount of work in christian apologetics Definitely don't miss last week's show. You can get it at godsolutionshow.com under the Past Shows tab. Well, anyway, last week we began talking to her about undesigned coincidences. It was an amazing conversation, and we're going to talk to her a little bit more about that in the second part of this interview. I'm thankful that you're tuned back in, and I know you're going to get a lot out of what Dr. McGrew has to say. Without any further ado, welcome back to The God Solution, Dr. Lydia McGrew.
1: Thank you for having me, Nate. This is fun.
0: All right, so last week we talked about some of the undesigned coincidences in the Gospels. Undesigned coincidences being what you called incidental, interlocking facts that point to the truth. You gave us several great examples. I was going to ask you one more from the Gospels before we jump into Acts, and that is in John. We hear John the Baptist talking about how he knew Jesus was the Son of God, but of course in John... There's nothing like that written. What's going on?
1: Right. So in John one thirty two through 34, we find John the Baptist doing what I call a flashback to the baptism of Jesus. It'll sometimes be mentioned that John doesn't contain the baptism. Well, if you want to get nitpicky, no. But it's John the Baptist telling about the baptism. So he says that the one who sent him to baptize, I think we can presume he thought of that as Yahweh, God... The, the the Jewish God, as he would conceive it, had spoken to him somehow, and we don't know if this took the form of an audible voice or what, but that he said to him, the one who was to baptize with fire, um, who was going to come after him, is the one that he would see the spirit descending on as a dove. Okay, so he baptizes Jesus as he remembers it, and he sees that happening, and he says, and I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. But as John the Baptist has recounted the story, the voice or whatever it was that spoke privately to him in his mind that said, here's how you'll recognize him. You'll see the Spirit descending on him as the dove. That voice did not tell him anything about him being the Son of God. He said he was the one who was to to come after him who was going to baptize with fire, but not that he was the Son of God. So where did he get this concept of you know, being the Son of God, you know, did he automatically think that this one he was to testify to was the Son of God, or what? Well, and he says, I, I thought, so it's like something that happened at that moment, and I bore record that this is the Son of God. If we go back to the synoptic gospels, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we can find this, for example, in Mark one eleven. It says that when Jesus came up out of the water, a voice spoke from heaven, saying... You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Aha! So, if John the Baptist was there, he heard not just this little interior revelation that he had, but a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. Now we know why John said, I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. And I think this is how memories really work that people don't always tell you everything that they remember they're talking. If you ever do oral history and you sit down with people, and this is really very foundational to the undesigned coincidences, especially in the Gospels, that many of these people really were talking. Uh, Peter was talking to Mark. John the Baptist was talking to uh, his disciples, for example. And some of his disciples then later became Jesus' disciples, and he's telling them what he remembers. This is how people do it. They don't always give a blow by blow. They don't always say, and there was also a voice from heaven. This is why we get these partial testimonies which fit together, and this is why this resembles witness testimony.
0: That's amazing. You know, you also talk about undesigned coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, how they relate to what's written in Acts and in some of Paul's letters and how they relate to Acts. Let me ask you about one of those that you mentioned, and that is all the way around to Illyricum. What's going on with that one?
1: This is something that we find mentioned at the end of Romans. At the end of Romans, Paul is talking about how far he's been able to spread the gospel. And so he says... I've, I've spread the gospel. I wanted to spread it in new places, and we do find this. Paul was definitely what we would call a missionary. And he says, "From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, <clears throat> I have spread the gospel." Now we can place the writing of Romans pretty precisely, and that statement is in Romans 15:18 through 19. <clears throat> and I'm not going to go here into all the details. About when Romans was written in relation to the Book of Acts, I do that in the book. But it looks like it was written in the time period related in the early part of Acts 20, when Paul was staying in Greece for a few months. And it's wonderful how we can place the writings of the epistles. I can now place the writings of uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, all probably to the verse, practically, in the book of Acts, even though Acts doesn't mention that Paul wrote any epistles. You know, I place it there by these indirect indications. So we can do that, and then what we can do is look back and say, well, first of all, where was Illyricum? It was approximately where modern-day Croatia is, so just sort of north and uh, west of Macedonia, and... When would Paul have had the opportunity to be there? Well, when Paul traveled through Macedonia the first time in Acts, in Acts 16 and 17, there really was an opportunity. He was sort of hugging close to, to the coast over there on on the east side. And Acts gives kind of a blow-by-blow blow there, so it's like a and, you know, it's way over on the other side. But when you get to Acts 20, verse 2, it says that Paul into macedonia and he went all about those parts and this is very vague, you know Uh, and he he was going about those parts strengthening the church and then he comes down the greek peninsula uh, and and hangs out in greece for a while, almost certainly in corinth where he had already founded a church and we, we have reason to believe it's at that time that he writes romans so that's when he would have had the chance to go all the way around to Illyricum now, Acts doesn't mention Illyricum or anything but it's just that we can infer that this is when he wrote it, but then we can also see in Acts that this is when he would have had the opportunity to even get to Illyricum. So it's this incredibly indirect, but for that very reason, all the more exciting connection between Acts and the and the Epistles of the Romans.
0: All right. So if you're listening to this going, My mind is blown, it's amazing how all the gospels interconnect in Acts and then Paul's epistles and Acts and It's amazing to see all these things connecting. Well, you don't have to do all this hard work on your own to find these things. Dr. McGrew has put them all together and Hidden in Plain View, and you can buy it right now today online. So don't wait any longer. I'd say pick it up right away. You'll get tons of examples, just like the ones we've been talking about. Besides undesigned coincidences, though, what other kinds of evidence exists for the view that these books are ordinary historical reporting?
1: I think it's very cool that there are other kinds of evidence. I put a lot of weight on them design coincidences, but I love to bring in other things. <clears throat> and these include what I would call internal evidences. External uh, evidence is great, or archaeology, topography, and so forth. <clears throat> and I love that as well. But I love internal evidences partly because they're not as widely known. One that I like to talk about is called incidental details. There are all of these tiny little details that get mentioned in passing and that appear to have no significance for the story or for the theology. So for example, in Acts, we find one of the characters saying, um, "Don't make a riot here in Ephesus. There are proconsuls you could go to." And then we can go and investigate the history of the time and we find that this is one of the only two, time, or one of the only times when there were two proconsuls at that moment for that region. So he uses the plural. There are proconsuls and it fits perfectly with Acts. It's an incidental detail. There are many of these in Acts. Wow. There are many in the Gospels as well. Um for example, John's gospel says that Jesus and his mother and his brothers, this is in John two, they went down to uh, Capernaum went down to Capernaum after the wedding at Cana and stayed there for a few days. There's a couple things about this. First of all, you do indeed go down from Cana to Capernaum because Cana is in the hills and Capernaum is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So topographically, you go downhill. And the author writes of this as a person familiar with the region, the way we would use a phrase like going down. He just uses it casually. They went down. So there's that. But then the second thing is he doesn't tell us what they did in Capernaum. He just this. they went down and they stayed there for a few days. And then he moves on and tells about the Feast of the Passover and Jesus going and cleansing the Temple. It is so random. And I love that because I think that's a mark of truth, Mm -hmm. that kind of randomness in a detail. Because, you, you know, you're going to have to really strain to find some special theological significance. But on the other hand, you sit down with your uncle, and you ask him about his fishing trip, and that is how he will talk. You sit down with a veteran, and you ask him about the Vietnam War, and that is how he will tell you the story. He will throw in irrelevancies from time to time. That's how real people talk about things they remember. So these incidental details are, are wonderful. Um, Another type of argument I love is the unity of the characters of various people. We find Paul to be very much the same person personality-wise in Acts and in the Epistles. He was a very difficult guy. He was difficult to get along with. He was touchy about money. So many of these things are confirmed. Peter is the same person throughout all the Gospels. Mary and Martha are the same in the one little incident we have in Luke about Martha serving and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And then in the stories we have in John about Martha serving, he mentions again, different incident, and Mary pouring out the ointment on Jesus' feet. So these unities, Thomas is uh, very much the same sort sort of pessimistic guy and so forth. And then, of course, the unity of Jesus' character. So these are other types of confirmations that show us that texture of history and testimony in the documents.
0: So when can we be looking forward to books on those topics from you?
1: Ah, well, there you go. That gets me into, (laughs) you know, what I'm I'm working on, what I am working on on the Gospel of John, and I will be talking about, about that. And I've had a, you can look right now, right now you can, um, find online. I have a series on John. You can follow the links from Lydia to my John series. And I use this phrase, only one Jesus, over and over Mm -hmm. again, that there's only one Jesus throughout all of the Gospels. It's not a different Jesus that we see portrayed in the the different Gospels. And in the one on Jesus who loves his friends, that's one of my segments we find uh, about Peter and Mary and Martha there. And, And I do have a digression on the character of Paul already and hidden in plain view of what his personality was like. So this stuff is definitely out there even already. If
0: you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Lydia McGrew. It's the second part of our interview with her. And we are talking about her incredible book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. I hope you'll pick it up today. Dr. McGrew... Can you tell us a little bit more about literary devices and uh, kind of your perspective on some of that?
1: Right. So since Hidden in Plain View came out last year, one of the new projects I've been researching and working on is the work of various biblical scholars that I call literary device theorists. And that's my name, but I, I think it's a fair description. I disagree with their work, and I've been writing in response to it. The basic idea that that I disagree with of some scholars, uh, including, for example, Dr. Michael Lacona, is that the Gospels are like movies or books that we would call based on true events. So they think that the Gospel authors were licensed by the conventions of the time to craft the stories, and this would include putting sayings into Jesus' mouth that he did not utter in a historically recognizable way, or inventing certain incidents that not never happened, or changing the years or the days when certain things happened. And I contend instead that these theories are just not borne out by the evidence, and that's a good thing, because that really would radically change our view of the reliability of the Gospels. Undesigned coincidences are just one way that we can see that this isn't true, because as we've seen in our discussion thus far, a model where these are just normal witness reporters or their recording what has been said by witness reporters really fits very well it's that casual way that people have of reporting things it's not highly literarily massaged or changed uh so i'm working on two different books right now one more generally on literary device theories and one on john arguing that they're historical in a much more straightforward sense and give us what i call a high resolution jesus or a mirror of Jesus, rather than a fuzzy picture or a mask that is put on Jesus and the apostles. And the great thing about this is that it's really borne out by the evidence. But to do this, I've had to delve pretty deeply into some other literature, Plutarch and uh, some exercise books from the time being or from the time period when these were gospels were written to show that this just doesn't bear out what's being said. So it's been engrossing and hard and difficult work, but also very Very rewarding and interesting as I've seen the normal historicity of the Gospels really being borne out.
0: That's exciting. I have definitely talked to Dr. Lacona many times on the show, and I'm excited to hear the other side of this uh, coin. And I think probably a lot of people are just wondering where, how does all this connect? You know, because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. A lot of people do. I know even Dr. Lacona. I asked him on the show; is very clear. Yeah, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He would say, as it was intended to be read, and of course we'd all agree with that. That's basic hermeneutics. But at the same time, I think we all wrestle with kind of the minimalist approach, and I know that you've addressed that. What's going on with, with that minimalist approach to Scripture, and, and how does what you're doing relate to that?
1: Yeah, I think there is a connection, because I think if you take a very minimalist approach where you say, uh, well, all we need to defend is the resurrection, and we, we don't really need to defend these details, then you don't think it matters so much if the Gospel authors were changing quite a bit. I mean, you know, Dr. Lacona implies in his book, to take just one example of many, that when John records Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Ghost after he rose from the dead, uh, that, that, that did not historically happen that John wove, was using that to weave mention of Pentecost. I don't even think it sounds like Pentecost at all, because Jesus is not personally present at Pentecost in Acts, but, but this was his way of sort of alluding to the coming of the Holy Ghost, and it didn't happen. But some people might think, oh, well, you know, our salvation doesn't rest on whether Jesus breathed on his disciples, so it doesn't matter. And so there is definitely a bridge to this minimalism the minimalist approach, whether you call it minimal facts or something else, involves trying to defend Christianity while not asserting that the Gospels are reliable in a strong historical sense. There's quite a lot of redefinition of reliability going on here. And the idea is to just use a few facts, sometimes these are called core facts, and to defend the resurrection on that basis. And sometimes those will who defend this approach will even say let's not saddle ourselves they'll use this phrase saddling ourselves let's not saddle ourselves with defending the reliability of the the books of the bible as whole books like the whole document of john is generally reliable or the document of luke is reliable overall um but in contrast i would say that the resurrection is really based on details, especially the physical resurrection. If We're going to say Jesus was physically raised. It's really useful that the Gospels record that the disciples could touch him, that they ate with him, that they heard him speaking over long periods of time, not just one word like, peace be with you, and then he disappears Mm -hmm. like a ghost in a ghost story or something, but that he actually has conversations with them. That's very important. If we don't know what they were basing their view on, then how do we know they were right? So if, you know, someone said to you, my uncle rose from the dead and appeared to me, I think you'd have a few questions. How did he appear to you? What was it like? What happened? How did you know it was really him? And so forth. Fortunately, because we have these resurrection accounts, they're pretty detailed, and we have reason to believe that these documents are reliable and come from those witnesses, we can, in a sense, ask them questions. What happened? What was he like? How did he appear to you? And so forth. And then we know that they were willing to die for this. The resurrection is an unusual claim. And I actually do think that we as Christians take on a burden of proof to, to defend that, and a pretty strong burden of proof, because we're asking people to devote their entire lives, maybe even to be willing to die for Christianity. So... I think we can't afford to do without any of the evidence that we have. This is even true for mere Christianity. I don't think mere Christianity helps a whole lot, because mere Christianity ain't so mere. It includes Mm -hmm. the deity of Jesus. It includes the bodily resurrection and so forth. So I think we should do what I would call a full-court press, to use a Mm. sports analogy, where we're actually asserting that the disciples claim to have had much more specific detailed experiences and then we're prepared to defend that and I think it's exciting that we can we can defend that we can defend that maximalist approach and I think this shows how the strong reliability of the gospels is important to our christianity
0: I really like the minimal facts approach to defending the resurrection and I think that's a great place to start with unbelievers a friend of mine puts it this way there are these three tiers he calls it we have tier 1 which is salvation tier 2 maturity and tier 3 w- disagreement issues and he says man when it comes to salvation that tier 1 thing when we do apologetics with an unbeliever that's that's where it starts we have to defend the things that are critical to salvation but if we end there we're doing ourselves and our ministry a whole lot of disservice because there's this whole other aspect of god's word that's critical to christian maturity to discipleship and everything else in the christian life in fact it's through our knowledge of him and his great promises in his word that we have what we need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. So we can't end at the minimal facts. I love the minimal facts. I love Dr. Habermas. He actually was here in town with us a few months ago. But it's got to go beyond the minimal facts and minimalism. It's got to go into a more thorough defense. I, I like the way Blomberg puts it. I'm not a Christian because of inerrancy. But because I'm a Christian, I believe in inerrancy, and we shouldn't drop inerrancy. We should defend it. In fact, we do uh, kind of a little um, acronym that we teach people for remembering some basic apologetics arguments. It's the best facts. And the four first ones are evidence for God, the beginning of the universe, the engineering of the universe, standards and morality, and the truth about Jesus— and then the facts is an acronym for why we can trust the Bible. It foretells the future. It's archaeologically accurate. It's coherent. It's translated correctly. And there's science. It shows God's fingerprints on his word. And I just feel like we, we apologetics needs to be comprehensive now more than ever. We need to be defending it all. So I'm so thankful for your work on this, and I feel like you're doing a great service to the body of Christ by doing the work that you're doing.
1: That's great. Um, and I would say, too, that even aside from inerrancy, a very strong form of reliability mm, is very mm-hmm. necessary. Um, it was interesting. Somebody asked Frank Turek at a conference this last week something about, I think it was the deity of Jesus. And he said, well, I don't know about you, but I just have a personal policy that when somebody rises from the dead, I believe what he says, which got a laugh. It was a, a mm-hmm. great line. And I came back to that when I gave my plenary address the next day. I said, this is what Frank said last night, which was a great, great line. When somebody rises from the dead, I believe whatever he says. And I said, okay, how do you know what he said? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kind of looked at me a little bit blankly. Why am I bringing this up? Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is because even as part of salvation, if we want people to believe that Jesus was God, for example, we want our strongest possible case. For believing that jesus taught that he was god and so i'm very strongly opposed to what i would call maybe this is a slightly controversial way of putting it mm-hmm. i would call it throwing john under the bus yeah. <laughs> and yeah. let's put it a little more politically correctly uh trying to make the case without john because john is considered controversial my approach is to say no forget that don't do it that way let's have all of it let's have everything because if we want to talk to the jehovah's witness at the door and say no jesus really taught that he was god we want to use all the verses including the ones where he is the most clear and the most explicit rather than saying oh let's tie one you know tie one hand behind our backs just to make it fair let's try to do it all from mark so i think we need reliability in a very strong sense even for those things that are necessary for salvation because the deity of Jesus is even part of mere Christianity. And I think it's often not really understood just how minimal minimalism is. It's very minimal. In fact, to get that agreement of a majority of scholars, the appearances of Jesus are left rather vague. In what sense did he appear to the disciples? Because someone like Gerd Ludemann, who will be cited, or Wolfhard Pannenberg, they do not believe that Jesus appeared in the robust sense of actually eating with them, and so forth. So that's a little surprising, and I think we'll have a much stronger argument for the resurrection if we have a stronger sense of Jesus' appearances. So I would bring in reliability even at quite an early stage, a high reliability. I would not even use the concept of inerrancy there, but high and unequivocal reliability in order to build my case even for those most basic facts.
0: I agree. All right, well, wrapping up, we only have about a minute here. Could you boil down the message that you want to give to the listeners about the Gospels and Acts into just a couple sentences?
1: I would say because the authors of these documents are doing real historical reporting, reading these documents allows us to get a vivid picture of Jesus and the apostles and the founding of Christianity. And I also want people to find my work through my page at lydiamagrew.com. You can follow me on Facebook, even without friend requesting me. You can follow my public content just by clicking follow, and you can make contact with me at lydiamagrew at com if you have questions. But I want to convey to people that vivid picture of Jesus and the apostles.
0: Dr. McGrew, thank you so much for your time with us this morning, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Can I Can I get you on the record saying you'll come back on to talk about a few of these other issues you brought up, like incidental details and the unity of the characters and things like that?
1: Absolutely. That would be a lot of fun.
0: Wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for coming on The God Solution Show. Thanks for having me. I'll see you online. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes the second part of our interview with Dr. Lydia McGrew. Again, I encourage you to pick up her book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. It's available on Amazon and everywhere that you buy books. I also want to encourage you to go to LydiaMcGrew.com. That's LydiaMcGrew.com. And you'll have other connections there to all of her social media and things like that. LydiaMcGrew.com. Well, if you listen to what Dr. McGrew shared with us today, I'm sure you are convinced that we can trust the Bible and what it says. And that really means that if you've ever wondered about eternal life and death and what happens after that, you can know a certainty that what the Bible tells us is true, that Jesus is the only way to be saved and that he died on the cross for our sins so that anyone who would believe in him would be given eternal life in heaven and a life of meaning and abundance here on this earth. I don't know where you're at right now, but if you're at that place of saying, yes, I need Jesus, I invite you to make a firm step today and say, I believe in him as Savior and Lord. You might even verbalize that to him in prayer right now, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and Lord and to make me the kind of person you want me to be. The Bible is very clear that if you believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you are saved, rescued, you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and abundance here on this planet. If you already do know Jesus, I hope that you're using what you're hearing on this show to share your faith with your friends and to defend your faith when the need for that arises. You can go to Godsolutionshow.com and get this interview and all of our past interviews under the Past Shows tab. And please, while you're there, let us know a little bit about yourself. And we'd love to be in touch with you. Definitely share a question if you have one. We'd love to address it on the show. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I believe that with all my heart. Hope you do too. I look forward to talking to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at Godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.